You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, King Jesus, in this moment, would you exalt yourself so that you would may be glorified in your kingdom advanced. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mark's gospel is, is a gospel that's on the move. It's urgent. It's marked by a sense of immediacy and action. Now you can feel this as you enter into the book and hear a, re- a re- repeated phrase And immediately Jesus did this or that. And immediately he. In fact, Mark uh, might get points counted off in a creative writing course for overuse of a phrase. But Mark doesn't care. He wants to draw you into a dynamic and moving narrative. A story whose main actor is the most important human being in the whole course of human history. Jesus Christ. But who is this Jesus? You know, Mark's gospel is put together in such a way that it resembles a three-part drama. The drama is moving in its three stages toward Jerusalem, toward the center of the world and the location where God will show his covenant love for Israel and the whole world. In the first stage of Mark's drama, Jesus' public ministry resides in Galilee, away from the public eye. Uh, not near the big city. Think more a Chilton County preacher than a downtown Birmingham presence. But in the second stage, Jesus is moving from Galilee toward Jerusalem. And we're following Jesus in this second stage along the road. And at the beginning of this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, again, think kind of Jasper to Birmingham, we hear Peter's great confession in chapter 8. You are the Messiah. Jesus had just asked him, who do people say that I am? On this Palm Sunday, no greater question can be asked and answered than this one. Who is Jesus Christ? Because the answer to this question resides at the very core of the universe and its reason for being. Your reason for being. Who is Jesus Christ? The answers, by the way, that other people gave, Elijah, John the Baptist, a prophet, all of them were incredibly honorable and noteworthy. There hadn't been a prophet in Jerusalem for a very long time, not to mention a prophet on the scale of Elijah. Elijah's very name could stand in for the whole of the prophetic tradition that came after him. There's a reason, by the way, that it's Moses and Elijah think in terms of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. There's a reason that they are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus transcends all of these figures because all of them, Moses, Elijah, the prophets, John the Baptist, all of them were fingers pointing to him, to the Messiah. All of them understood their whole prophetic hopes and legacy as resting on this figure, this man, who at the beginning of the 8th chapter of Mark 
sets his sights on Jerusalem because he's the very son of God and the very son of David who's come to redeem the whole universe. So who are you, Jesus? You're the Messiah. You're the very son of the living God. Elijah would never say that about himself. Moses or Jeremiah wouldn't dare. That's why chapter 8 is so important in laying the groundwork for the triumphal entry in chapter 11. Because right after Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, Jesus tells them, they're going to kill me. He foretells his own death and resurrection. And Mark's gospel says, Jesus spoke plainly about this. And it had to have been embarrassing and upsetting to hear Jesus talk this way. And you're the Messiah, for goodness sake. So Peter uh, pulls Jesus aside in chapter 8 in a very intimate moment of a one-on-one interaction. And you can feel the breath on their respective faces. And and he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus calls him Satan, right to his face. Because Peter's completely misunderstood Jesus' mission. Not to restore the Davidic throne of Israel by political or military might but to ransom back the whole universe that has been held captive by the onslaught of sin and the devil. Who are you, Jesus? You are the Messiah. You are David's son. You are God's son, the creator and the redeemer of the whole world. So the third and final stage of Mark's three-part drama begins with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus again is on the move, setting his face like flint toward his purpose and reason for coming into the world. And there on the top of Mount Olives, Jesus sets the stage for a symbolic action that has no parallel in the whole of his earthly ministry. And make make no mistakes about it, Jesus is crafting this scene. He's setting the stage. He's orchestrating the events to make clear his identity. You might recall back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, right after Peter said, you are the Messiah, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about this. But now in this third scene of Mark's great narrative, silence is no longer in order. Jesus rides on the back of a colt toward Israel's capital city. The scene is one of provocation. It's a bold and unswerving statement. The curtain is pulled back completely, and now the stage lights are blazing. Didn't King Solomon ride on the back of a colt toward his enthronement? Didn't Zechariah the prophet tell us that we would rejoice greatly and shout when we saw our king coming to us, righteous and victorious, riding on a colt, the fall of a donkey? The stage has been set. The actors are in their place. And Jesus moves to center stage and he claims his royal title. At the triumphal entry, Zechariah's prophetic word and and Jesus' symbolic action, they become one. It's a grand scene. As Jesus' followers hail him as the king that he is, Hosanna, they cry, save us now. While I was preparing for the sermon, I kept hearing Jesse Norman's big mezzo-soprano voice singing the great spiritual, Ride on, King Jesus. No man can hinder thee. Ride on, King Jesus, because no one works like thee. 
But how would this king save us? How would he answer the great cry of Hosanna? And here's where the scene blossoms before us in a way that no one could have anticipated. Let there be no mistakes about it. When King Jesus rides toward the city gates of Jerusalem, he is coming as a judge. He's coming to right wrongs and to level his judgment against the wicked, especially the wicked rulers of the house of Israel. Jesus isn't coming to reform. Jesus is coming to uproot and rebuild. Zechariah told us this would happen. Psalm 98 told us that when the Lord returns to Zion, he will return as a king and he will come as a judge to make right the wrongs of injustice, oppression, and sin. So Jesus is coming as the king and he's coming as a judge. And we see this drama unfolding before us in this narrative that we heard read this morning. And I love the last verse of our reading in Mark 11. It almost seems like a throwaway verse. May I read it to you one more time? So Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What? What's that all about? Jesus rides to the gate of Jerusalem as a royal figure. He goes immediately to the temple. He takes a look around. He realizes it's too late, and he heads back out of town with his disciples to Bethany. What's Jesus doing? He's on a reconnaissance mission. He's scoping out the temple. He's seeing what the place has become. It's certainly not a house of prayer. It's a place that's marked by corruption from top to bottom. And King Jesus is about to exercise his royal right to cleanse the temple. But it's too late. I'll have to come back tomorrow. This is going to take some time. So he goes out to Bethany with his disciples. And then, and this is not in our reading this morning, then things get wild. The next scene of the narrative, we find Jesus cursing a fig tree. Remember this? He saw a fig tree, beautiful leaves, then he curses it, and the fig tree will never bear fruit again. It has no fruit. I used to be troubled by this scene as a child. I thought, you know, the poor fig tree, what, what did it do? But the fig tree is just a prop in this great temple and redemptive drama. We know now how Jesus views the temple and its leadership. It's a lush plant with no fruit. My dad used to speak about a tomato plant that he nursed and babied for a whole summer. He said it had the most beautiful leaves you've ever seen, but nary a tomato on it. The temple is all show, but no substance, form, but no content. And before we know it, Jesus is in the temple, flipping tables, turning the place upside down, He's exercising his right as Israel's king to cleanse and judge the temple. So remember, don't make any mistakes about it. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the judge. Ride on King Jesus. He has all authority. He has all power. He has come to preach freedom and release to the captives. He's come to bring and to scatter the wicked shepherds of Israel and to set the temple in order. And we find ourselves a bit like Peter back in chapter 8, don't we? Jesus, you're the king. You're the Messiah. Claim your throne. What's all this business about dying and, and rising? It just seems utter nonsense. But our thoughts are, are not God's thoughts, and 
The stage has been set. Jesus' identity has been clearly revealed. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord Christ. And he will exercise his lordship in the grandest act of divine humility ever displayed when we follow him outside the city walls to Calvary's barren hill. On this Palm Sunday, when our gospel readings commingle the triumphal entry with the reading of the Passion narrative, which we will hear after communion, we find the hilarity of the gospel on display. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, they smile. They know all about the laughter and absurdity that's linked to God's plan. When young King David comes running in from the countryside, Jesse's youngest son, the most insignificant son, he smiles too because he knows how Israel's God operates, never according to the schemes and plans of humanity. How does Jesus Christ demonstrate his kingly right as the judge? He does so by taking his own judgment onto himself for me and for you. He becomes the object of his own wrathful judgment. And when he does so, he does so for the sake of the whole universe and for the sake of sinners like you and me. When we stand at the cross, we see King Jesus mounting his royal throne. This coming Friday, we're going to sing together, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And the answer is most assuredly, yes, we were. Because my King and my God took the rights of his own judgment, a judgment properly leveled against all of sinful humanity, And he turned that judgment in on himself. You remember Abraham's knife never fell on his son. The Lord stopped it. But when it was God's turn, nothing in heaven or hell could have stopped that knife from falling on his son for me and for you. So you see that one hanging on the cross between heaven and hell? That's my king. That's my God. Ride on, King Jesus. No man can hinder thee. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.